Well, good morning. We will kick things off here. I know there'll be some people trickling in yet. That's okay. We are moving right along through Romans, and this morning we find ourselves in Romans 3. And we're going to read Romans 3, 1 through 20. But before we do that, I'd like to just maybe address the elephant in the room. Maybe there's not an elephant, and if you don't feel like there is, awesome. But on the off chance that there is, I just want to come right at it. I'm aware that we started off things well in Romans 1. Paul gave us a great uh, short little snippet about what the gospel is. Romans 1, 16 and 17, it's the thesis statement of Romans. He reminds us that we are saved by faith in Christ alone. The gospel is the power of God to save us through our faith in Jesus Christ. Great news. Great news. The problem is, he then moves, rather than like moving on to the good news, he flips back to the bad news, and we've kind of just been living there for the last several weeks. And I'm aware, it's not lost on me, I, I, I know that I can be kind of, you know, a bull in a china shop and a bit on the nose and a little bit of a challenging preacher. That's kind of in my nature. But I feel like the last several weeks, it's maybe been a little bit more challenging. And I want you to know that, that I'm sensitive to that, that that is not lost on me, that it might be and it might have been some, some hard stuff to hear over the last several weeks. Paul has been on and on and on again. He gave us the good news, but then he's been spending the last several pages of Romans, three chapters of just hammering us over and over again of how you and I are sinful and broken and lost. And if you need a refresher on that, I'm going to give you one, okay? So he, he starts with, <laughs> sorry, not sorry, he starts with he starts with those who are the unrighteous. Those are the godless, the people that don't know God. They celebrate evil. They think of new ways of doing evil. And he said, yeah, they're lost. They're doomed. And all the religious people say, amen, right? But before he lets us just like point at them in judgment and then get over here in our nice little, little ship by ourselves sailing off in our moral goodness, he says, no, no, you're not in that boat. You're in their boat. You're, you're in that sinful, sinking boat as well. And he says, listen, the, the godless, they are held accountable because they have a conscience. Whether you know God or not, all of us, we can look at situations in the world and say, that's messed up. That's unjust. Somebody should do something about that. And because we can make that judgment, that conscience that speaks and testifies to good and evil, he says God is righteous in condemning us, whether we know the truth of the gospel or not. If you're godless, he says you're not off the hook. And all the religious people, amen. But he says to the religious people, your judgment of the godless judges you. He says you're actually in their boat as well. And so he works through these different groups of people, and we discover in the first part of Romans that if we're not in one condemned group, we are in the other condemned group. His point is that he wants us all in the same boat together, and the boat is a sinful, sinking one. We all stand condemned before the Father of heaven. Last week, if you were here, we learned that it's not just about what we know. Truth is important, but it can't save you. Even the demons know who Jesus is. They're condemned. Truth can't save us. We learned, that, we learned that it's not just about what we do. It's not that how we live doesn't matter. It matters to God, but it can't save us. And it's not about what we show. It's not about the church ceremonies that we participate in, right? Circumcision, which y'all love talking about, right? Circumcision can't save you, right? Baptism can't save you. 
Communion can't save you. It's not about what we know. It's not about what we do. And it's not about what we show. He says, the reality is, if you are separated from Jesus, it doesn't matter what family you're in, what ethnicity or race you are, the color of your skin, how much Bible you know, how clean your life looks on the outside. If you are not in Jesus, you are in a boat that is sinking. You stand condemned. I realize how challenging of a word that is. It's challenging. It's hard for us to hear. And it's not, it's not just challenging in general. It's, I think it's worse for Americans because we've grown up in a culture where everybody gets a trophy, where everybody gets a participation ribbon, where we, we, we indoctrinate our children and tell them because we want little Johnny to feel special and loved, which is good, but we take that to the extreme and, and we want them to know that he's a unique little snowflake and that he just, just had so much self-esteem, right? Give him a trophy. We just don't want to offend anyone. And to, to one degree, that's good. Like we should build our kids up. But if we build them up spiritually and making, making them think that, that, hey, everybody gets a trophy at the end and you're a unique little snowflake and man, you got a lot, lot to just be thankful for about in yourself, we're not teaching them what the Bible tells us about our sinful hearts. The Bible tells us that we're not unique little snowflakes. We're all in the same boat, and it's a sinful one that's sinking apart from the love of Jesus Christ. That is a challenging word. In a culture that says self-esteem is the pinnacle, if you can just feel good about yourself, man, then you've, you know, Pazlov's triangle of self-actualization, the whole psychological stuff. If you can just feel good about who you are, man, you've got it. The Bible says there's nothing to feel good about in yourself, who you are apart from Jesus Christ. That's challenging. That is hard to hear. And so Paul's been laying down this gauntlet for us for the last three chapters. He tells us time and time again, here is what God's standard is, perfection. And he begs the question, has one of you, any of you, me included, have any of you achieved that standard? course we haven't and we might say well we're not as bad as some and Paul says you're right to see that right there is a scale we love that scale but he says the problem is you're you haven't reached perfection and so if you're not perfect then you stand condemned in the last several chapters it's like this Paul has walked us to the edge of the Grand Canyon you ever seen that hole as far as holes goes pretty cool one right it's grand as they say it's big it's majestic. Paul walks us to the edge of that thing and he says, here's the deal. If you want to live a life of purpose and meaning, if you want to know God and have salvation, if you want to be assured of your eternal destiny, all you have to do is get to God on the other side. Jump. He says the godless, they kind of just kind of stumble off the edge and they fall to their death. They don't know where they're going. They're blind. They don't even know there's a grand, and then they fall and they die. And then he says, I'm aware in a group this size, we might have some high school athletes. Some of them all did track and field, right? Man, you could, you do the long jump. So you, you see that? You hear that? We're at the edge of the canyon. God's over there. You think, gosh, that's pretty far, but I'll give it a shot. So you muster up all your speed and you run and you jump and you get farther than the godless. 16 feet, high school record. And then you fall to your death, separated from God. Then he says, 
You've all seen the NFL athletes, right? Good genes, big ogre of a man, Olympic athletes. These are the religious, moral. They've got it together. They're crushing it, running businesses, making money, doing philanthropy, doing all the good stuff. They hear Paul's challenge. God's over there. All you got to do is run and jump. They say, challenge accepted, right? Full send off the canyon, 25 miles an hour, which is fast if you can run that fast. Not many can. Just, they go, 28 feet, world record. And then they fall to their death. Apart from Jesus Christ, Paul says, this is what we are all like. Some of us might be able to jump farther out into that chasm, but apart from Christ, we stand separated and condemned from God because the standard is perfection. Challenging stuff to hear, but God's got grace for that. That's the good news of the message this morning. We're going to look at three different groups of people. You say, didn't we already look at them? Yeah, we looked at the godless, we looked at the moral, we looked at the righteous. This morning we're going to look at the cynic, we're going to look at the sinful, and we were going to look at those people who just want to measure up, try harder. Paul has grace and good news for these three groups of people as well. So let's read from Romans 3, verses 1 through 20 this morning, and then we'll talk about it together. Bear with me. And it's a little wordy. I picked the uh, NLT this morning because it's less wordy than some of the other translations, but we'll read it and then we'll talk about it. Romans 3 from the New Living Translation, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Then, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there's great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but... Just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, God, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But, some might say or object, our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair for him then to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not, Paul says. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But someone might still argue, how can God condemn me a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Well then, Should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. We're all in the same boat, and it's sinking. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous. Not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench of an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. 
challenging words to hear. Verse 19, Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Hard stuff to hear. There's bad news, but I want to help bring the good news to this bad news to our hearts this morning. I want to do that in three points. Firstly, I want to speak to the cynical this morning. The cynical, this is the person that is deeply distrustful of others, skeptical of others' integrity, including God, right? Constantly questioning everything, full of doubt, driven by fear, always looking or always asking questions, but never really looking for an answer. In verses 1 through 8, we discover that God has grace for the cynical. He has grace for the cynical. In verses 1 through 8, Paul anticipates questioning the worth of certain ceremonial rites. Perhaps you grew up in a more traditional church and you jump through the religious hoops and you realize this is all a bunch of malarkey, right? No one talks about God. They just talk about these little hoops that we jump through and we do this and that and nobody changes and everybody lives how they want anyway. This is all farce. What's the point of participating in all of this show and all of this ceremony? Why bother with circumcision? Why bother with baptism? Why bother with communion? What's the point? If it doesn't save us, why should we participate in it? Paul says, I hear you. I hear you. And if you make that sign, those signs about salvation, you're missing it. They are worthless. But he says there is value in participating in them. They help us tangibly remember the truth about who Jesus is. So circumcision was a sign of covenant of the old, the old covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant. It doesn't save us, but it symbolically testifies before our church family that we, were, we have died to our old selves, got dunked in the water in the death of Jesus. We got cleansed, washed, and when we come out, we come out a new creation. It symbolizes the new birth that happens in a very tangible way. He says it can't save you, but it is valuable, not just for your family, but for yourself, to make that testimony and to participate with God's grace in a more tangible way. He says, good question got a solid answer for you. Other people question the truth about God. You might be there, right? How can we know the Bible's true? It's such an old document. How can we trust God? How can we know this, that? There's lots of good questions about the validity of God's word and the truth of God's word. And Paul says, listen, you can trust God's word. And he doesn't give an argument. He says, let me point you to God's track record. People say, well, look at these Jews. They're a bunch of hypocrites. Look at how unfaithful they are. And Paul says, yeah, We're all a bunch of hypocrites. We got hypocrites today in the church, but don't look at them, look at God. And let me tell you about his track record. Even when people are hypocritical, even when people are unfaithful, God remains faithful always, always. You can see it. You read the Old Testament, the Israelites are just doofuses. Time and time again, they forget and they're dumb and they're sheep without a shepherd and they scorn the name of God and are disobedient and rebellious and the Father of heaven pursues them relentlessly with his love and faithfulness and he makes a way when there ain't no way. He says, listen, I I know you got questions about truth. There are some solid answers, but if we get to some mysteries that are inexplainable, let me invite you to look at God's track record and trust him because of that. You can look at the scriptures. 
But let me also encourage you, if you're a cynical person with questioning the truth of Scripture and all of that stuff always, find a seasoned saint in here. We have a bunch of them. Ask them about whether or not God has been faithful to them. I guarantee you what they will tell you. Yes and amen. We have men and women who have lost spouses in tragedy who have suffered tremendously and they might not be able to explain why, but I guarantee you if they know the Lord, they will tell you he has been faithful. Paul invites the cynical person to examine the questions of their heart. There are a lot of really solid answers. He also tells us that there are some dumb questions, right? You might hear if you grow up in school, oh, there's no dumb question. That's not actually true. There are some dumb ones. (laughs) There are some dumb ones. He engages with another group of people that says, well, if, if God and his standard of perfection is made all the more beautiful and good, the darker we live our lives, then we should just like go on, let's just party it up. Paul says, that's dumb. That's dumb. You're making a mockery of God. God cares about holiness and righteousness. He hates sin. And for us to say, well, if it makes God look better, if we just sin, shouldn't we just sin all the more? Paul says, you deserve what's coming if that's the argument you're making. Because it's wrong and it's sinful and sin will always take you further than you ever intended to go. Always, every time. And where it takes you, you do not want to go. Church, I know this is challenging, but what encourages me from verses one through eight is that God will meet the cynical person in their doubt and in their questions. He is not put off. He is not offended. He is not afraid of your doubts or your question. Some of them are good questions. A lot of people, you might, you might hear them say, well, you know, it's just blind faith. We're just supposed to believe. That's actually not true. It's not blind. God doesn't call us to have blind faith. Now, I'm not going to say he doesn't walk us to a certain point where we do have to leap. There is a leap of faith that needs to be made. It's just not blind. Your faith in Jesus is reasonable. It's logical. And God will meet you in your questions and provide solid answers for the ones that you need to know to make that leap. And for the other ones, whether they're just not great questions, right, they're rooted in arrogance, arrogance and pride, how dare you, this, that, and the other thing. God might humble us and, and, and that. Or he might just say, hey, I need you to trust me in this. I need you to trust me in this. And again, to someone who doesn't know God, that sounds like a cop-out. But to the person that knows the Lord, it's enough. Church, I don't know how everything works. There are a lot of things in this life that tick me off, that make me say, what are you up to, God? But at the end of the day, I trust him. I trust him. I don't have all of the answers and I've reconciled in my heart that I never will, but I don't need them because I know the one who does. And he's good. And you can trust him. If you're cynical and you got questions, Paul says God's got grace for that. He moves on. He moves on to verses 9 through 18 and he gives us another list that again sounds very harsh. (laughs) It's hard to hear, right? No one is good. You're all, you all stink. You're all dumb. Nobody, right? It sounds really bad. But let me encourage you, there's actually a silver lining here. Because where the power of sin fails, God has grace for you. God has grace for you. I just want to walk through this list. If you have your Bibles, it'll be helpful. I'm not going to have it on the screen, so you can look at the verses with me. But in verse 10, it says, No one is righteous, not even one. Paul says, sin has no power to make you righteous. 
has no power to change your position before the Father of heaven. Sin has no power to change your standing before his presence. You can jump off the edge of that Grand Canyon. You might be able to jump pretty far, but sin ain't going to take you to the other side. Sin has no power to get you to God. But God, God's got grace for you. Verses 11 through 12. 11 through 12. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Paul tells us sin has no power to make you wise or useful. Friends, do you want to know your purpose? Do you want to live your life in a way that matters? You want to change the world, make your life count. Do you want to help people live well, to be good, and to make a difference with your life and the lives of those around you? Paul says sin's got no power to help you there. Can't make you wise, can't make you useful, can't give you a purpose. But God, God's got grace for this. He's got wisdom for you. He's got purpose for you to make your life count. Verse 13 and 14. Would you like for your words to build up your children? Man, I know I would. They don't always. Would you like your words to build up your spouse? Again, mine don't always. Would you like your words to build up your coworkers, your friends, your relatives? Would you like your words to bring joy into your life and the lives of those who matter around you? Paul says sin's got no help for you with that. The only thing a life of sin can do is warp your tongue so that it spews out venom, fire, and a stench like that of a rotting corpse. Cursing and bitterness, lies, that's all sin knows how to help you speak. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Would you like for your words to cultivate joy in your life and the life of those around you? Sin's got no power for that, but God... God's got grace for that. Verses 15 and 16. Would you like for your relationships to be redeemed? You got some broken relationships in your life? Would you like for your anger to be quenched? Are you a short fuse just constantly waiting to erupt? Would you like power to forgive and move towards others in love and have relationships restored? Paul says, well, sin's got no power for that. All sin can do is drive you to commit murder, whether it be physically or emotionally. And most of us probably fit into the emotional camp, right? We cut people out of our lives because forget them. They've hurt us one too many times. It's just not worth it. I'm not putting myself out there again. Man, forget them. Forget you. Cutting you out of my life. Murder. All sin has the power to do is bring destruction and misery into our lives. You want to be alone and isolated? Sin's got power for that. You want to be restored in your relationship with others? Sin's got no power for that. But God, your Father in heaven has grace for that. Verse 17. You want to know peace in your life? You want to have a sense in the core of your being that everything is going to be okay, no matter what. Hurricane wipes away your home, vacation home. Someone dies in your life. You get fired. Do you want to have a sense in your heart, that everything is going to be okay. Sin? Sin's got no power for that. Sin is the source of anxiety, is the source of fear. It's got no power to give you peace, but God? God's got grace for this. Would you like to know your maker? Verse 18. 
Verse 18, they have no fear of God at all. Would you like to know your maker? Would you like to know the Father of heaven? Would you like to receive love and affirmation from your father? Maybe your earthly father has done a really lousy job at giving you love and affirmation. Maybe they were absent. Maybe they had a standard in their head that you just never measured up to. Would you like to know love and affirmation? The love of a father? Sin's got no power here for that. But God? God's got grace for this. He's got grace for this. Sin can't lead you into God's love. It can only lead you away from it. But the good news for the sinful is that in Christ, God has grace for us. Church, the bad news is you and I are slaves to sin. And none of us want to admit this or go where sin is leading us. But the most amazing news ever is that in Jesus Christ, God has grace to break the power of sin over our lives and release us from its clutches. You can know freedom from sin. And that is good news. And lastly, the good news of the gospel brings freedom from the never-ending failures we experience from trying to measure up. The problem with a lot of Christians, and it's not just Christians, perfectionism is its own thing, but perfectionism with church clothes on is incredibly problematic because you and I can hear the gospel, and here's what we hear. Jesus wiped our slate clean. Now I better keep it clean or else. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard people say, with a look of rejection, of fear, of sorrow and disappointment in their eyes. I know God's disappointed with me. I know I'm not that good of a Christian. And you can hear it. They say, I know Jesus, he paid for my sins, but I just haven't done a good job of keeping my life clean. It's a mess. And so because you, you live there, you're actually not living in the truth of the gospel. You're living a lie. You're believing that God did everything you needed to do to get clean, and now unless you do everything you need to do to stay clean, he's disappointed with you. He doesn't want to see you. He doesn't want to look at you. And so you live with this constant rejection in your heart and a sorrow. You don't want to go into God's presence because you know you're just going to get another lecture. And I'm here to tell you this morning that is bad news, and it's not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that when you walk into God's presence, he's got grace for you. You feel like you don't measure up good. You don't. The gospel doesn't say, Jesus did everything for you so you can start to try and measure up and try harder. Good luck. No, Jesus says, you can't, you never will. I did come into me and find rest. Come into me and find joy. Come into me and find satisfaction. Those of you who live constantly with that pressure of, I, I just, I didn't do enough, with regret, hear the word of the Lord this morning. You're loved. You are loved. You're loved. You're loved. You're loved by the Father of heaven. You could say, how can that be? How can I know that's true? Look at that thing. Look at the cross. Jesus says, this is how much I love you. You couldn't, you wouldn't go there, but I will for you. Come into me. Let me do for you what you can never do for yourself. 
Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Of what? From trying to measure up. You see, so many Christians, they, they, hear, they hear the law. They hear the law and what they see is a job description and they say, challenge accepted. Friends, the law is not your job description. It's Jesus' job description. And it's not challenge accepted. It's Jesus, do for me what I can't do for myself. And he says, gladly. Gladly. If you are tired of striving, if you are tired of being guilt-ridden and under condemnation and constantly feeling like God is disappointed with you, you are living under the law. You are in this boat, bailing water. And Jesus says with that life vest, I would like to lift you out of that boat and bring you into me. Into me. And if you are in me, you are loved, you measure up, you are enough because I will always be enough for you. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Are you tired and worn out from constantly trying to measure up to the perfection of God? Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, I know it's been a challenging several messages. The reality is you can't get found unless you know you're lost first. The beauty of the gospel is that God doesn't just show, our need, show us our need through the law to condemn us. He shows us our need through the law so that we might find the solution in his son. If you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, I don't have good news for you. I don't have bad news. The Bible has bad news. You stand condemned. Condemned. But God has grace for you. And you can know that grace if you will put your life into his hands. If you've never made that decision, please do so today. We have a prayer team over here that would be happy to pray with you. I will pray with you. But know this, salvation doesn't happen just through a prayer. Yes, we need to get reborn. We need to have a spiritual birth. There's a moment in time where that needs to happen and a prayer of commitment is a part of that. But if a prayer for you is only just, let me say this prayer so I can get my fire insurance and then I'm just gonna go keep on sinning so that grace may abound and God might look better, you've missed it. God is inviting you to reorient your entire life. And it starts with a prayer, and then it begins with a journey. And it continues with the journey of following Jesus. And you're not going to get everything right. You're not going to get everything right. That's the beautiful picture of salvation that God gives us. He calls it a spiritual rebirth. Anybody raised kids in here before? When they come out, can they do anything for themselves? Do they know anything? No. They're horrible. <laughs> They don't sleep, right? They poop and pee in their pants. They can't feed themselves. They can't express their emotions except, ah! that's, how, that's all they got. It's horrible. That's what you're like when you're a new Christian. And God has grace for you. The problem is if you stay in infancy, God expects for you to act your age. He has an issue if you're five years old in the faith and you're still acting like an infant. And that's the discipleship process. We call it parenting in the family. We call it discipleship in the church. 
if you have never started growing up in Jesus, I invite you to do that today. And no grace, and no love, and no affirmation. And we will work with you to bring you up and to parent you and disciple you into the man and woman of God that you were always meant to be. It's not gonna happen overnight. You're not gonna know all your Bible overnight. There's not an easy button. You're gonna backslide some, and God has grace for that. Praise God for that grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your affection. Thank you for making a way when there was no way. Lord Jesus, if there is anyone here this morning who has not begun that relationship with you, if they are still in that boat that is sinking, would you drop the life best this morning and help them get into it? Pick them up out of that boat. Breathe into them new life. Make them into one of those beautiful and precious little babies in the faith. And give them the ability to grow. Give them patience with themselves. Thank you for the patience that you have with each and every one of us. Forgive us, Father, when we try and do it on our own. Help us to remember it's not by our works so that none of us may boast. It's only by faith that any of one of us are saved. We're weary. We are tired and worn out. Thank you for the invitation, Jesus, to come and enjoy your salvation rest. May we all live in it. Bring us into your goodness, Father. What a shepherd. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.